Well, good morning and welcome to Mission View. I know that uh, I know that many of us this morning woke up disappointed, and uh, it's all right. We'll pretend it was about the Buckeyes and not the fact that uh, Butch Persley, pastor of Maranatha Bible Church, is here with us today. Uh, so just just pretend that way and, and let him know that it was clearly the Buckeyes that we're depressed about. We're really excited to have Butch Persley from Maranatha here. If he if he does great and he doesn't offend you, he's my dad. If he offends you, not so much. I don't know the man. Uh, and so we'll just proceed that way. Now, I've told him we do things a little bit differently here at Mission View than, uh, than they do over at Maranatha. Many of you were with us in August when he introduced uh, Mitch Bowman and uh, felt free to rearrange the consonants of Mitch's first and last name. Uh, so we do things a little bit differently, and there will be no more of that today <laughs> with us here at Mission View because we would never stand for such a thing as that. So we're very excited that he's here. We're excited that you're here. We hope you're getting in the Christmas spirit. And uh, boy, after that song, I don't know how you couldn't be. So Merry Christmas. And uh, we're really excited about it. We've got, this is out of order, by the way. I'm just going to tell you right now. But we've got a Christmas thing coming up. Celebrate with the family on December 22nd. If you're all about Christmas and Christmas is a big deal. How can you not be? We celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus, which is awesome. Uh, Sunday night, December 22nd at 6 o'clock, uh, right in here. It's not like a choir production or anything like that or a show. It's just a time to get together and celebrate. There will be some singing. There will be Christmas cookies. There will be everything great about Christmas and nothing terrible about Christmas, all wrapped up in one glorious evening Sunday, December 22nd, 6 p.m. You were handed a card when you walked in. That's your save-the-date reminder. Pick up another card and let somebody else know about it uh, so that they can celebrate with you. So then we can turn this celebrate with family into celebrate with family and friends. All right. So we're very excited that you're very excited about that as well. Hey, uh, don't forget, sign up for a community group. If you haven't already, sign up. The new semester starts in just a couple of weeks. Just a couple of weeks in January, the week of January 12th, you can sign up for your community group, and uh, you're not going to want to miss that. Stand up, say hi to somebody, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do next. But say hi to somebody this morning. All right. All right. Well, I know a number of people have been asking us, uh, when can we become an official part of, of Mission View? You can go ahead and have a seat. When are we going to become part of official, uh, official at Mission View? When are we going to become a member? So on December 29th, on Sunday, December 29th, that is going to be your opportunity where you just affirm a statement if you want to be a member at Mission View. Well, over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to show you some glimpses of what becoming a member at Mission View entails. It just means that you agree with these things. So here's the first video, and then after the video rolls, we're going to engage and, and sing some more worship. We're glad that you're here. Have a great morning, everybody. Becoming a member at Mission View Church starts with a personal relationship with Jesus. God's Word tells us that a Christian, somebody who's decided to follow Jesus with their life, is a member of the Universal Church. And so being a member in Mission View means, first and foremost, you're a member of the Universal Church. You're a Christian, a Christ follower. See, we believe the Bible teaches us that we've all sinned, we've all rebelled against God. God had a standard, and his standard was perfection. 
And all of us fall short of that standard. We've all made mistakes in our lives, some more than others, some more egregious than others. But at the end of the day, we've all made mistakes and we're all imperfect. And the problem with that is God's standard isn't good or bad. God's standard is perfect or imperfect. And we all fall short of that standard of perfection. God loves us, he created us, and he loves us in spite of the fact that we fall short of his standard. So much so that he took on the form of humanity and yet retained all his divinity in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to this world, lived a perfect life, was born of a virgin, ministered, performed miraculous things, and ultimately died upon a cross because of my imperfection and your imperfection, something the Bible calls sin. The Bible tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's Jesus. And that's the work of Jesus on our behalf. And so Jesus came and and he died on the cross and three days later he rose again from, from the dead proving that his sacrifice for our sin was acceptable in God's sight and in allowing us to have intimacy and a relationship with God that our imperfection, that our sin had violated because of God's standard. Because we are imperfect and his standard is perfection. The Bible in Romans 10 tells us this, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And that's where membership starts. It starts with us realizing there's a problem with us. There's a problem with me. It's not that I'm good or bad. It's that I'm imperfect. And God's standard's perfect. And I can't measure up. But Jesus did, and he did so on my behalf. And so I can have a relationship with God. And so the first step to membership at Mission View Church is making that decision to follow Jesus. It's coming to a place where we realize we can't do it on our own, and we allow and accept Jesus' sacrifice to become the main part of our life. It's not a good or bad thing. It's a perfect thing. I would like to draw your attention this morning to the country of Turkey. There are three things that I would like to lead you in prayer this morning concerning Turkey. One is for Ramazan and Karen Arkin. They are in um, Antalya at an Italian evangelical church. And also for Hyrie and Layla, they are new um, church planters in a nearby city. And then also I would like to pray, as far as Turkey is concerned, about Mission View, that we would have a a passion uh, for that country and that we would give of our time, um, our money, and, and our prayers. God, it answers prayer. And then also there's a local missionary uh, from New Point Community Church, Pastor Brian Connor, to pray for that work, that we could just partner and, and be a part of, you know, this city to reach the lost. Let's bow our heads. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, you're an amazing God, and you, um, 
Tell us that you can be found if we seek you. And I pray now as I come to you and as we come together corporately, as I lift up Ramazan and Karen, Lord, that they have leaders in their church and they are maturing and I pray they would continue to mature. I pray for the people there that they would just reach out to others and that many would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I think of their son Levi, who was born prematurely. I pray for good health for him and that he would develop properly. Lord, I think of the new church planners, Hyrie and Layla. Lord, the one thing they need now in that area that has no evangelical church, Lord, is they need the funds. It takes money for them to live and to just reach people with the gospel. I do pray for, for New Point Community Church. I pray for Pastor Brandon Connor, Lord, that you just work in his heart, keep him close to you. I pray he would preach truth, he would preach your word, and that he would, um, that you would work in the hearts of those people, Lord. And I lift up Mission View. We have a new work here, Lord, and we have people, Lord, that can just come together. And I pray that you would just work in their hearts and that you would prick them and that they would just have a passion for Turkey. It is, there's so many people there and most of them know nothing about you. And you can do an amazing work and you can have a revival in Turkey, Lord. And I pray now as we collect the offering, once I step down, that you would just take those funds and you would bless them and that you would multiply them. There are many people that give out of their abundance and there are many that give sacrificially, Lord. Pray that your blessings would be upon that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We've arranged that at least two to three times a year we're going to be trading pulpits. He'll speak at Maranatha, and I will come down and speak here at Mission View as long as you guys continue to let me do that. Uh, I'm thrilled to be with you this morning. For those of you who are here, who've come here from Maranatha, let me say to you, Thank you for the step of faith that you're taking in helping us to establish a new church here in the North Canton area. For those of you that are here this morning that have come from other churches to join Mission View, to be a part of Mission View, thank you for the sacrifices that you are making and for your commitment here to see that there is a, another strong gospel-preaching church here in the North Canton area as we seek to reach this area for the Lord Jesus Christ. And for some who may be here this morning who you were unchurched or maybe going pretty irregular, uh, we're glad that you're here and that you're a part of this ministry uh, for you and for those in the community who know nothing about Jesus Christ at all. That's why we've started this church here. And we're glad that you're here and that you're a part of this ministry. This morning, if you have your Bibles with you or your phones or your apps or, or some way to access the scriptures, I would encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Uh, you've been doing a series here called The Pursuit. And this morning, I want to talk about summing it all up. I think we can sum up everything that God would want of us 
in two simple statements. And it's Jesus who gives us those two statements. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, follow along in your Bibles beginning with verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. There's a story that's told of Aristotle, the great thinker and philosopher, that one day a young man came to him and asked him, how can I find wisdom? Aristotle turned to the young man and said, follow me. He began walking throughout the city, went through various different streets and and weaved his way to the center of that little town. And there in the center of the town was a little pool. Without hesitation, Aristotle walked right into the pool. The young man hesitated for just a moment, but then followed Aristotle into the pool. When Aristotle got at the midpoint of the pool, suddenly he turned upon the young man, grabbed him by his neck and shoulder, and forced his head beneath the water. As the man flailed and struggled with Aristotle, Aristotle being stronger, continued to hold his face beneath the water until the man thought he was about to drown. And just at that moment, Aristotle let loose of him. You know, he popped up out of the water gasping for air. And Aristotle said to him, as I was holding you beneath the water, what was the one thing you were thinking about? And he said, air. And Aristotle responded, when you seek wisdom, the way you were seeking that breath of air, then you'll find it. Sometimes we think of ourselves as seeking after God in that way. But that's not how it happens at all. Because the Bible tells us there's none that seeks after God, no, not One, it is God who seeks after us. As was shared already this morning in the the video of our position and our need of a Savior, God created man. He made Adam and Eve and put them in a perfect environment. That's not an allegory. That's not just a story. That's a historical fact. There was one man and one woman directly created by God that the rest of us have descended from. Placed in a perfect environment, Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. Adam deliberately chose to break the only prohibition that God had given him. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet he broke that command. And because of that, 
sin entered the world. And death by sin. And sin has been passed on to each and every one of us. Don't believe this philosophy that would teach us and tell us that we come into this world neutral. That we're neither good nor evil. But we're this blank slate. And if your children sin, it's because you as parents have taught them how to sin. Uh, any parents here that took that as their, you know, parental advice? I'm going to teach my child how to sin. We don't have to teach them to do that. You know, I am blessed we have had added to our family our fifth grandchild. And I look at our, our youngest one, just uh, a, a few weeks old. Uh, and little Ellie, as precious as she is, is still a sinner. We don't have to teach her to cry when there's nothing wrong with her. She does that. Why? Because she wants attention. The world revolves around her. That's pride. That's selfishness. We don't have to teach our children to lie. We don't have to teach them to steal. They do that by nature, proving that they were born as sinners. But God comes to us while we are sinners and seeks after us. The book of Romans teaches us that God seeks after every man and has given to everyone light for him to respond to. And if we respond to that light, he gives us more light and more light until we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Because that's why Jesus came into the world. The scriptures state very clearly, he came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's our mission as a church as well, to seek those who are lost and to bring them into this universal family of God. Well, as God reaches out to us, what is it that he wants in response? We can sum it all up in the two statements of Jesus that we'll get to in just a moment. As we look at the passage that is before us, you'll notice that it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. See, they're trying to lay traps for Jesus. And actually, this is the third of three traps that have been placed before Jesus. They're recorded for us in the text here in Matthew chapter 22. If you back up into verse 15, you will find the first test that will come. You'll say, well, why are they trying to trap Jesus? Why are they trying to get him? Because they don't like him. They hate him. Somehow we have and the world has this idea that if Jesus were to suddenly show up in our world today that everybody would love him. 
You know, Jesus, that wonderful person, he never offended anyone. He got along with everyone. Everybody loved him. He loved everybody. And it was this huge love fest with Jesus. It wasn't like that at all. Sure, the crowds loved Jesus, but there were many who were threatened by Jesus, in particular, very religious people. Now, why are the religious people so upset by Jesus? Because they are teaching people things that are not true, and Jesus will not let that stand. See, though we do not seek after God, all of us know that deep inside of us, until we know Christ is our Savior, there is something that is missing. Some have uh, referred to it as a God-shaped vacuum that is within our hearts. There's something that's missing. The fulfillment is not there. We know it. So we seek to fill that with different things. Some people seek to fulfill it with, with riches. If I can just get enough money, I'll be satisfied. Someone once asked the, the founder of the, the Rockefeller Empire, how much money is enough money? And his answer was, one dollar more. It never satisfies. Some seek that satisfaction and that fulfillment through their work. And they become workaholics, working, 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 feeling somehow they'll achieve this point that that emptiness goes away, but it doesn't go away. And some try to fill that emptiness with religion, man-made religion that has all these rules, all these laws, all these regulations. And along comes Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that the keeping of these laws, the keeping of these regulations, first of all, you can never perfectly keep them. And secondly, as you strive to keep them, they do not give you fulfillment. You have frustration instead. And so here's Jesus, popular with the people because he's lifting the burden of religion off of their shoulders, and he's speaking to them about having a relationship with God. And the religious leaders hate him, they're threatened by him. And they realize that Jesus is teaching against them. In Matthew 21, in verses 45 to 46, it says, When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. We find in the, the book of Mark, which is parallel passage to this one, that it is after this confrontation takes place that we're going to talk about here in just a moment that no one dares ask Jesus a question. It's like they've set forth this threefold trap for him. And when they cannot capture him in it, they're afraid to try to trap him again. 
So let's look at the traps. The first trap relates to taxes. Anybody here like to pay taxes? It's a little dark out there, but I don't see any hands up if anyone's saying, I really like to pay taxes. Anybody that thinks our government uses our taxes in a very good uh, way? Anybody here think we can trust our government to rightfully use our money and not waste it? Right, things have not changed. It was the same way in Jesus' day. They hated paying taxes, and the Jews in particular hated paying taxes because the taxes were being paid to the Romans, and the Romans had occupied their lands. And so verse 15 of 22, chapter 22 says, The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians getting together here. They send their disciples and they say, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Gag me at that point. They don't mean a word of that. They hate him. They seek to trap him, but they're trying to butter him up with flattery. You're such a great and wonderful teacher. Uh, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, the crowds are there, and the crowds, if he says, pay your taxes to Caesar, uh, there's no one going to be real happy with that answer. If he says, do not pay your taxes to Caesar, he's going to be accused of insurrection and going to be arrested by the Romans for teaching against them. So they think they have a perfect trap set for him. But notice how Jesus responds. Verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites! You pretend to be something that you are not. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the, the tax. They brought him a denarius. It was a coin. It was equal to one day's worth of wages. And he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Whose inscription is on the coin? Caesar's. So therefore, if Caesar demands taxes from you, you pay Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. But don't miss the deeper truth that he's also trying to get across. You pay to someone what they deserve because of the image that is stamped upon it. Whose image is man in? The scriptures tell us God created man in his own image. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But you better give to God what belongs to God. 
When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Right, we had the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now we have the Sadducees. Those are three different religious groups within Judaism, and guess what? They didn't like each other. They didn't get along with each other. They didn't believe the same thing, and yet here they are united in their attempt to trap and to trip up Jesus. The same day the Sadducees, and notice what it says, who say there is no resurrection. They do not believe in the supernatural. They do not believe in the afterlife. The Sadducees believed that this is all there is. We live here, we die, and then it's over. But notice their question to Jesus is about something they don't even believe in. They ask him about a law from the Old Testament and then tie it to the resurrection. So the, second, the first trap had to do with taxes. The second trap has to do with the resurrection. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children... His brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Ladies, aren't you glad that's not a law that we have today? <laughs> I thought I heard a couple amens out there. <laughs> See, the nation of Israel was an agricultural nation. The owning of property was very important to them. So it's important that it be passed on through the family. That's why God gave this law through Moses that if someone died without having children, it was the responsibility of his brother to raise up children in his name so the property would stay within the family. It says, now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Okay, here's your question, Jesus. Seven brothers married to this same woman one at a time, each of them have died, so whose wife will she be in the resurrection? I can think of a better question. The question I would think of, of is this. How dumb is the seventh brother? <laughs> I mean, really? This black widow has killed off six of his brothers. I know it's the law of Moses, but I would have left the nation. I'd have gone someplace else rather than marry this person because I think you could pretty well predict what was going to happen to you. Maybe even a better question would be, who would want her in the resurrection after she's gotten rid of all seven of them? But here we have a trap by the Sadducees, 
who don't even believe in the resurrection, wanting to know whose wife she would be. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. That doesn't mean you're becoming angels. Oh, I get so sick of people referring to their dead relatives that they're now angels up in heaven. They're not. Angels are created beings. They are different than human beings. It says, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He says, quit focusing on death and let's focus on life here and now. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of those who are living. And now along come the Pharisees. They've been strategizing. They're coming up with a test. And they get one of their individuals who's an expert in the law. He studied it through and through. Now from the parallel passages of Scripture to this, it seems that there is at least a level of some sincerity on his part as he asks this question, even though it is a trap. He wants to know which is the greatest commandment in the law. It is a test for Jesus. But what is the greatest commandment? Now when he says in the law, he's probably going directly back to the Ten Commandments. Probably not referring to the whole first five books of the Bible, which are known to the Jewish people as the law. He's probably not referring to all the regulations and additional laws that the Pharisees have added on to God's law. He's probably thinking of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which is the greatest of these Ten Commandments, trying to get Jesus to pick one and to elevate it above the others. But notice how Jesus answers this test. Because in answering this question, he tells us all we need to know about what our priorities should be. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Number one, love God with all your being. Other passages would add the terminology here, with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all that you are, with your entire being, love God. Now, when the scriptures use the term love, they're not using it in the terminology of meaning something that is this romantic type of love that we think about when we hear the term love. It's talking about making a commitment to be committed to God 
Make God your number one priority. And he says the law can be summed up in these two commandments. The first and greatest is this. Put God first. Everything else falls behind that. And don't do it just half-heartedly. Do it with your entire being. Be completely and totally dedicated to God. Now what's that mean for us today? As we heard already on the video that was shared earlier in the service. That begins with a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus came to seek and to save those which were lost. If Jesus came for the express purpose of going to the cross to die upon the cross and shed his blood so that we can be saved, commitment to God begins with a commitment of our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. All of the Old Testament speaks and points to Jesus. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And it amazes me, everybody loves the baby in the manger. But the baby in the manger came in that way as the God-man so that he could demonstrate to us the righteousness of God and so that he would go to the cross and bear our sin so that the way would be opened up so that man could have a relationship with God the Father. So loving God begins with loving his son. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You can't love and serve God without having a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must make him the priority. You love him. This is the first and greatest commandment. Someone may say, well, how do I love him? Well, you accept the sacrifice that he came to make for you. You realize that he died on the cross so that you could be saved. And you admit that your own righteousness, your own efforts, your own religion, your own, you fill in the blank, whatever it is is never going to meet the standard of God's complete holiness and that you can only be saved through his sacrifice. And you receive that. You accept that. To as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And that begins our walk with him. And that begins our commitment with him. And it's not just a, a prayer that we pray. It is a commitment of our life to him that makes a difference in everything we do and how we react to everything. We love God with our entire being. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as your Self. See, you can take the Ten Commandments and you can break them up and you can sum them all up 
in these two statements. Love God and love your neighbor. Notice Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We can sum it all up. In your pursuit today, if you are pursuing after God, I'll sum it all up for you. Love God. Love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor, you may say? Same question was asked of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, he told the story of the good Samaritan. You know, the the person who was beat up by thieves, left alongside the road. And a Levite passes him, a priest passes him, and does nothing for him. But the Samaritan comes alongside and takes care of him and provides for him. Who is your neighbor? It's anyone you come in contact with who has a need. We are to love them. We are to love them, not just saying, hey, I love you, go off and be filled. If they're hungry, we feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them something to drink. If they're lacking in the basic necessities of life, we seek to help meet those basic necessities of life for them. Why? Because in doing so, we are demonstrating this love. And we do all of that for them. Not just meeting their physical needs, but also meeting their spiritual needs by sharing with them the message of a Savior who can totally transform their lives. There it is. All summed up. Two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. It was during the Revolutionary War. There was a pastor by the name of Peter Miller. He had a church in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. And he was a personal friend, Pastor Miller, of George Washington. In the town where Pastor Miller served, there was a man by the name of Michael Whitman. Michael Whitman was, you know, one of those sorts of people you really didn't want to be around. And he was the type of man who caused trouble for everyone and caused a great deal of trouble for Pastor uh, Miller. Michael Whitman served in the army underneath George Washington. Word traveled back to his hometown that he was going to be tried as a traitor. The trial took place, and Michael Whitman was sentenced to death. Pastor Miller walked 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of this traitor. General Washington uh, said to Pastor Miller, no, Peter, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. My friend, declared the old preacher, he's the bitterest enemy I've ever had. At which point General Washington said, You walked 70 miles to save the life of your enemy? That changes everything. 
and General Washington granted him a pardon. As Peter Miller returned to his home that day, he walked back with one who used to be his enemy, but now had become his friend. See, God did even more. God left heaven, came to earth to those who were his enemies. But more than just plead for us, he died for us and shed his blood so that we could be welcomed into his family. And he reaches out to us today and he reaches out to you in love. The question is, will you respond? What do you need to do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second, it's like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity to us. And I pray that you would help each of us that we might be focused on loving and serving you. I pray as well, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of anyone here this morning who've never made that commitment to Jesus, that today they might put their faith and trust in him. Help each of us, Lord, to seek after you since you have sought us out. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.